Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Use it today to speak to us and minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There once was a wealthy man who lived in a land of ooze in the ancient Near East. If he were alive today, he would be not just a billionaire, but a multi-billionaire. Bill Gates kind of money. But not only was he rich, he was honorable, blameless. He feared God and turned away from evil. And not only was he rich and honorable, he was blessed. This man had 10 children. Now, some of you might be thinking, now if I had 10 children, that would be a curse and not a blessing. But back then in the ancient Near East, if you had 10 kids, that was a good thing. All was well for this man and his family, but there were storm clouds on the horizon. Little did he know that, this, that he and his family was the target of a divine wager. You see, the devil had entered the presence of God and said, well, this guy, he only serves you because you've made him healthy and wealthy. He doesn't really love you. He's only using you. He only worships you because you've given him all this good stuff. I bet, I bet you, God, if you take away all his blessings, he'll turn away from you and curse you to your face. And God listens to this bet, this challenge that the devil has thrown down, and amazingly, he agrees. And so this man, in one day, he loses everything, all his oxen, his sheep, his camels, his children. All his wealth and all his children are gone in a single day. But what's more astonishing is how he responds. After losing everything, he rises and he worships God and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang about that this morning. This is the true story of a man named Job, who was at the center of a celestial wager. Job lost it all, his wealth, his children, and later his, even his health and his friends. But in the midst of all that suffering, he clings to God. And Job, while he suffers, he pleads with God. He wants this day in court. He wants to plead his case to God because he feels like he's been unjustly treated. And he has. He hasn't done anything wrong to be treated in this way. And so after 35 long, excruciating, painful chapters of suffering, of grief, of sorrow, God shows up. God shows up. But God doesn't show up as a, a, a tiny whisper. God shows up as a gigantic, powerful whirlwind, this powerful tornado. And this, when God shows up, it leaves Job speechless. When he sees the greatness, the awesomeness, and majesty of God, he sees in a fresh new way what he's always known, that God is not like us, that God doesn't answer to us, and that God doesn't owe us any explanation, that he is the creator and God, and we are creatures. And that's where we find Habakkuk. In this third and final message in the book of Habakkuk, in chapter 3, God shows up, and that changes him, that affects him, and that changes everything for Habakkuk. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1. Habakkuk was wrestling with God with the problem of evil and the problem of delay. He was asking God, how long, O Lord, and why? Why was he suffering? 
why was there so much violence and injustice? It didn't seem consistent with God's character. And God's first answer made no sense to him. God tells Habakkuk, well, there's actually going to be more evil and more delay. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And in chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk that the righteous live by faith, by trusting in God. That God, he has a plan of judgment and salvation that takes place in his time. And it'll eventually fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in this third chapter, we see that even if we lose everything, we rejoice in God alone. Even if we lose everything, we rejoice in God alone. There's three parts we'll be looking at. First, God shows up. Second, God saves. And finally, God satisfies. God shows up, God saves, and God satisfies. In this first part, God shows up, and when he does, everything gets out of the way. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shagianoth. We're not sure what Shagianoth means, but a similar word is used in Psalm chapter 7, verse 1, when King David prays a prayer of absolute desperation. Psalm 7, verse 1 and 2. A Shagianoth of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. A Shagianoth is a prayer, a psalm, a hymn, a plea of complete reliance on God. And if Job lived during this time, we would have read about a Shagianoth of Job. So what does Habakkuk say in this moment of complete desperation? Well, let's look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk has heard the report of God and fears God's work. Judah will be destroyed by the Babylonians. That was Habakkuk chapter 1. And in chapter 2, those five oracles of woe, we know that the Babylonians themselves will be destroyed in their turn. And Habakkuk at this moment is desperate. He's waiting, for tra waiting in traffic and stuck. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're waiting in traffic, that you're stuck, that you're desperate for God, that you're in a Shagionoth moment? None of us want a Shagionoth moment, but God in his mercy sometimes puts us through those things so that we can experience God in ways we wouldn't have experienced him before, that we would cling to God in ways we would have never clung before apart from the Shagionoth moment. And the Shagionoth moment looks different for different people in different seasons of life. Many years ago, I graduated from college. I look older than I actually am, in case you're wondering. You're probably thinking, this guy barely graduated from high school. Uh, but, you know, this was many years ago. I was young and single. I got a job as an engineer, and in college, I didn't really have any success in the relationship department, and I was hoping for a change after graduating. There were ladies I was interested in, but it wasn't mutual, and things just led to dead ends. An opportunity arose to have a long-distance relationship, and this was 
oversees long distance. And uh, over the course of two years, uh, through emails, phones, and phone calls and visits, we actually grew quite close, but it became clear that we were headed in two very different directions. I was looking towards marriage, at least in the near term, but that didn't seem to be on her radar, at least not at that moment. And so the relationship had to end. And when the relationship ended, I was discouraged, I was sad, uh, I was at a point of desperation, a Shagiyanoth moment of sorts. I came to see that everything I tried wasn't working, and I believe God was bringing me to a point of humility and desperation, a point where I would turn to Him and surrender my desires. And as I wrestled with God with questions about my future, I felt the Lord telling me to trust Him, trust me. God was asking me, would I follow him? Would I follow him even if, even if I never got married, even if everyone else around me got married, even if my desires and hopes weren't realized? And I felt like I was at a crossroads. Would I turn to God or, or would I turn away? Habakkuk is at a crossroads. God's told him that the righteous live by faith. And now he has a choice whether to live by faith or turn away from God in his point of desperation. And it's in this point of desperation, this Shagiyanoth moment, that God shows up. That creation is turned upside down, mountains and hills are upended and they dissolve. The sun and moon are frozen into place and he gets an awesome and terrifying vision of Almighty God that changes him. Let's look at that in verse 3 through 7. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. See, God is marching in, coming from Teman, from Mount Paran, coming from south to north, and coming for war. We often think war is a bad thing, but sometimes it's necessary and good to set things right. A war can defeat evil. In 1957, crisis erupted in Arkansas. The governor of Arkansas, Orville Eugene Faubus, was resisting a Supreme Court order which said that nine African-American students should be allowed to attend Little Rock Central High School. And this governor was using the Arkansas National Guard to defy the federal order. And so President Eisenhower, when he saw that the law was being broken, when there was injustice being perpetrated, he sent in the U.S. military, a stronger force. And so these soldiers escorted and protected these nine courageous students so they could attend high school. God is that stronger force, and he is this power who is coming to enforce justice. And when he marches in, his splendor and glory fill the heavens, and the earth praises him. And this language would have reminded Judah of what God did before. When Moses gives his last sermon before 
passing the baton to Joshua, he leaves Israel with this vision of God, this vision of God coming in with the conquering Israelite army to defeat the wicked Canaanites so they can have their homeland. Deuteronomy 33.2, the Lord came from Sinai, this is Moses preaching, and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. If you look at verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. The mystery is that as God reveals himself, he actually has to hide himself also because we can never see God as he really is. No one can see God and live. A.W. Tozer tells a story of a king who calls in a rabbi. This king, he didn't believe in Yahweh. In fact, he wanted the rabbi to stop preaching Yahweh. And he told the rabbi, "Tell, tell your God to show up. If he shows up and I can see him, I'll let you keep preaching. Otherwise, if you continue preaching, it's going to be the death penalty. I'm going to put you to death. So the rabbi respectfully tells the king, Sire, let's walk into the garden. So they walk into the garden. It's noontime. The sun is blazing. It's hot, bright, and heavy. The rabbi turns to the king and says, Sire, look at the sun. He couldn't. He tells the king again, Sire, look at the sun. And he couldn't. There's no way this king could look at the sun. And then the rabbi says, if you can't look at one of the smallest lights that God has produced, how can you look at the God who made this light? You can never, we can never see God for who he is. No one can endure the day of his coming. No one can stand when he appears because he is a consuming fire. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. And when this God shows up, changes everything. He shows up. And he doesn't come alone. Look at verse 5. Pestilence goes before him and plague comes after him. This refers to death and destruction. And this language, again, would have reminded Judah of what God did in the past the ten plagues of Egypt. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was given a direct order from God, let my people go. And before the plagues, Pharaoh thought he could put God in his place. He said, who is Yahweh, and why should I listen to his voice and let Israel go? Does Yahweh think he's in charge around here? I'm in charge around here. If Yahweh wants anything done, he's going to have to go through me. And his request is denied. Well, after the plagues, Pharaoh was put in his place. And Pharaoh was singing a different tune. And and at the end of those ten plagues of judgment, he knew without a doubt that Yahweh was God and he wasn't. Let's go on in verse 6. God, he shakes the nations, and the eternal mountains and everlasting hills are leveled. This doesn't mean these hills and mountains are everlasting, because only God is everlasting. At the end of verse 6, we see that his ways, only God's ways, are everlasting. So God marches in. He's veiling his power because we can never see him as he is. And plague and pestilence come before and behind him, and the mountains and hills are getting leveled. 
and the onlookers, as they see God showing up, they shake in fear. Because when God shows up, his enemies are destroyed. Even the new enemies are destroyed also. Look at verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushan and Midian are actually two oppressive nations in the book of Judges. They were raised up by God as punishment against Israel because they went off and served other gods. They were unfaithful. So they were raised up as punishment, just like the Babylonians are raised up as punishment. But then they are crushed by Yahweh. If you remember, the Midianite oppressors are destroyed by Gideon in the book of Judges. Gideon and his army, his insignificant army of 300 men, 300 men, this insignificant loaf of bread, they wipe out the entire Midianite horde, 100,000 troops. It's when God shows up, nothing can get in his way. Nothing can stand in, in his way when he comes to fight and save his people. That brings us to our second point, how we've seen that God comes, and now second, God saves. Let's look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. At this point, the tables are now turned, and God's anointed, his chosen one is saved, but the wicked are crushed. And when you anoint someone with oil, it's, the anointing is actually done over the head, and it's, you pour the oil over the head, and it's a symbol of power and honor. Kings are anointed with oil, to indicate that they're going to rise to a place of authority. The name Christ actually means anointed one. But now the head of the wicked is crushed. So you have the anointing of one head and the crushing of another head. Verse 15, let's go on. You, Yahweh, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Yahweh is riding in, coming on his chariot of salvation. And, and the waters, to trample the waters, the waters of chaos that are a threat to people in life. Before creation, if you remember from Genesis 1, the spirit of the Lord, spirit of God, hovers over the waters, or hovers over creation, which is formless and void. <clears throat> There's no land, no life, nothing. It's not, it's not inhabitable. But the creator has the power to bend creation to his will. And instead of opposing life, creation now is used to save life. The Red Sea is split so Israel can march across. But then the waters cover the Egyptian army and annihilates them. In the same way, the Jordan River is split so that the Israelite army can enter the land of Canaan and conquer it. <clears throat> But not just the rivers and seas, but the heavenly bodies are brought into heaven, are brought into combat. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> the sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. In Joshua 10, five kings form an alliance to try to stop Joshua and the advancing Israelite army. Israel had just destroyed Jericho and Ai, but God told Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. 
So Joshua and the whole army, they march all night, and they surprise this alliance of five kings. And then when Israel fights these kings and these armies, the Lord throws all the enemy armies into a panic and then throws these large stones to crush them. But the problem is the sun is setting. This great victory is about to be cut short because night is coming. And so Joshua cries out to the Lord. He prays, and he says, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon at Valley of Agilon. And so time stops. The sun and moon, they actually stop so that the Israelite army could continue fighting and completely destroy their enemies. <clears throat> God's saving power continues in verse 14. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. <clears throat> Many times God's enemies, they seem strong, but it's just an illusion. Old Palmer Robertson writes, <clears throat> Rather than being terrified at the strength of their enemies, <clears throat> God's people ought to rest confidently in the assurance that the strength of the enemy's power only displays their capacity to destroy themselves. Daniel's enemies are thrown into the lion's den. The wicked fall into the pit they dig. The heads of these enemy warriors are pierced by their own arrows, and God, because he is God, and does what he pleases, he raises up these kingdoms and then has the power to destroy them and punish them with their own devices, with their own tools. And at this point, Habakkuk is just overwhelmed. He can't take in the awesomeness of God. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. <clears throat> my legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And that day of trouble for Babylon, those coming Babylonian invaders would come in 539 BC when Persia would come and destroy them. James Bruckner writes, <clears throat> Yahweh's actual victories for Israel are the necessary background for understanding the possibility of a final cosmic defeat of evil. God delivers his people from Pharaoh, from the Assyrians, from Babylon, from the enemy of all creation through Christ, and finally from death. <clears throat> For the Christian, no theophany is more life-changing than the incarnation. Reading the narratives of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, and singing of them are essential to the building of character, hope, and faith today. These past victories remind us of a coming future victory that's guaranteed. Pharaoh Assyria, Babylon, then death and the devil are crushed by Yahweh. And to build our hope and faith to today, we must remind ourselves that Jesus has shown up. He will show up. And when he does, he will save his people completely. We know that things won't continue as they always have been. <clears throat> Sin and suffering, injustice and violence come to an end. And when Christ shows up in a final cosmic way, Creation is turned upside down. Matthew 24, 29. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, 
and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus shows up again, but not as a baby in a manger, but riding a white horse, coming on the clouds to conquer his enemies, and every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So God shows up. God saves. And now, a third point, God satisfies. God satisfies. This chapter ends with joy, not judgment. It ends with probably some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. It ends with satisfaction in God alone. So you wrestle with your own Shigeonoth moment as you wait for God, as you walk through suffering and trial, difficulty and pain. We're wondering, what does it look like in those moments to wait by faith, to live by faith? Habakkuk shows us. He's a living, breathing example of how the righteous live by faith. In the middle of destruction, the Babylonians are coming. The nation is going to be destroyed. Judah, they will lose everything. But there's still a sense where Habakkuk has everything because he still has God. We're going to turn our eyes to verses 17 and 18. And if you're looking for verses in Scripture to, to memorize, to hide in your heart, these are verses that just jump out at you and just say, memorize. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk worships God because God is the God of his salvation. David Baker writes, Judah derived most of her sustenance from crops such as figs, grapes, olives, and other produce of the fields, as well as livestock. Even though these sources might fail in some way, Habakkuk sees that ultimately his existence is not based on them, but upon their source, Yahweh. By faith, Habakkuk sees that His existence is based on the source, Yahweh alone. The problems of verse 17, that the failure of the fig tree, of the vine, of the flock, of the fold, these are failures of nature, the failure of creation, not failures coming from that coming invasion. Francis Anderson writes, even when these most familiar and reliable tokens of God's goodness are withdrawn, God himself will be more than enough for fullness of joy. God himself will be more than enough for fullness of joy. If you're ever stuck without food or water, survival experts have this rule of thumb, this rule of threes. You can survive three minutes without air, three days without water, and three weeks without food. If Habakkuk has no figs, no fruit, no food, Habakkuk is going to die. You can't survive without any food. 
But Habakkuk has come to see that God is more precious than life itself, that even if all food, even life itself is taken, he sees that God himself is enough for fullness of joy. And that's radical. Most people aren't prepared to live like that. Jesus, when he calls us to follow him, we can only be all in or all out. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no middle ground. He's either your Savior and Lord, or he's neither. Luke 9, 23 and 25, through 25. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses or forfeits himself? And what use is blossoming fig trees and fruitful vines to gain the whole world if you lose yourself, lose your soul? Psalm 73, 25 and 26 puts it this way. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if he is your Savior and Lord, your flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And in my Shagianoth moment many years ago, I came to realize, as I wrestled with God about my future, about marriage, about these deep questions, I came to see God as the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's look again at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This phrase, I will take joy, can also be read as let me take joy. Let me take joy. Habakkuk, in this moment, this Shagianoth moment, he's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself. Habakkuk is putting up a post-it note on his mirror to remind himself to rejoice in God alone. This is what the psalm writers do. Psalm writers say, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you discouraged within you? Hope in God. Hope in God. When we were in chapter 1, two weeks ago, I mentioned how prosperity preaching is dangerous. This prosperity preaching is the, the, the idea that God's job is to give you health and wealth, that all you have to do is believe, and God's going to get you the good stuff. It's popular because it fits with the American dream. The American dream, as I understand it, is your goal in life is to get a great job with benefits, be married, have two and a half children, own your own home, and retire at 65, and do it all with health and wealth. None of those things are bad, but maybe you've been taught that, or you've heard teaching that the Christian life is your best life now. But Jesus never promised health and wealth in this life. If you remember, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus confronted him with his love for money, told the rich young ruler, sell everything, give it away, and come follow me. Jesus promises us, promises us a cross and a crown to take up our cross and then receive the crown of eternal life. And compared to our eternal perfection in heaven, this is our worst life now. 
and Habakkuk as he's waiting for God's judgment to fall on Judah and then to Babylon. It's his worst life now because the best is yet to come. He's looking forward to no figs, no fruit, no olives, no food, no flocks, no herds, nothing. But he says, I rejoice in the Lord. Let me take joy in the God of my salvation. Richard Sibbs writes, God, God will have it so for the comfort of Christians that every day they live, they may think, my best is to come. A Christian is a happy man in his life, but happier in his death, because then he goes to Christ, but happiest of all in heaven, for then he is with Christ. How contrary to a carnal or worldly man, he is miserable in his life, more miserable in his death, but most miserable of all after death. If you don't belong to Jesus, not only are you miserable in this life, you're more miserable in death and most miserable after death. So come to Jesus. Plead with him for his forgiveness and to cleanse you so that you can belong to him. Come to Jesus today. Turn and be saved. As Matthew shared this morning, God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance, to come to life. And he is delaying. He is patient with each one of us so that we can come to him, come to him today. In verse 19, let's look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. By faith, we see that God is our strength, that he makes our feet leap like the deer's. No matter what kind of suffering, no matter what kind of grief or trial you're going through. So for the sister suffering with cancer, by faith you see that the Lord is your strength. For the brother suffering immense pain and memory loss, the Lord is your strength. For the friend caring for, c- caring for sick family members, the Lord is your strength. For those suffering loss and grief, the Lord is your strength. For those waiting With no end in sight, the Lord is your strength. For those who feel like they're living under the cloud of prejudice and hatred, the Lord is your strength. And let's let's preach this to ourselves. Let's remember in the middle of suffering, the middle of unanswered questions, our doubts that God shows up, that God saves, and that God satisfies. Francis Anderson writes, Habakkuk began with complaining about a lack of deliverance. Now he proclaims Yahweh as the God of my deliverance. A matter of hope, not a fact of experience. Habakkuk has learned to live by faith. Habakkuk has learned to live by faith, and he sees how God satisfies him. God alone. Judgment comes for Judah. Judgment comes for Babylon. But salvation comes for the righteous who live by faith. If you've come to Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him, you know that God is our salvation. He's our savior and not our judge because of the salvation that he purchased at such a great cost. Jesus gave up his life. He gave his life as a ransom, as a penalty, as a payment for us, died in our place. No one took his life. He, laid, he had the authority to lay it down, and he had the authority to take it up again. And if we've come to him, we have seen how beautiful and glorious and how worthy he is. 
and Habakkuk, Job, and now the church, we see that to live is Christ and to die is gain. William Tyndale lived in, the, lived in England during the 15th century when it was illegal to own your own Bible and illegal to read the Bible on your own. He was a priest, a rising star in the Catholic Church, and then he started reading the Greek, but then he started reading the Greek New Testament on his own and discovered justification by grace alone through faith and not of works. And he had this passion to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ by translating the Bible into English so everyone could read of this gospel. The king wanted to stop him. And so Tyndale had to flee the country and abroad is where he worked for the next two years to translate the New Testament into English. And when he was done, he snuck back into England. He was able to smuggle in copies of the English New Testament. And the kings and cardinals, when they found out about it, they were furious. They tried to get rid of it by buying up copies, which ironically financed his work on the Old Testament. And he would spend the next nine years on the run translating the Old Testament into English. But in May 1535, Henry Phillips, someone who had befriended him, betrayed Tyndale. He was captured by the authorities, condemned as a heretic, and then sentenced to death by burning at the stake. On Friday, October 6th, the local officials in the middle of the town square brought out Tyndale and told him to recant, to recant, to give up trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Tyndale refused and said he would rather die and be with Christ than to deny the gospel. He wrote, for if God be on our side, if God be on our side, what does it matter who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, popes? So his feet was bound at the stake, an iron chain was put around his neck, and then he was strangled and burned at the stake for the gospel. What is this gospel that he died for? What was this gospel that was so precious to him? This is how he defined the gospel. William Tyndale wrote, Evangelion, that we call the gospel, is a Greek word and signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings, good news, that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy, whereby all men that were in bondage to sin, wounded with death, overcome of the devil, are freed, justified, restored to life, and saved. And those who believe, praise, and thank God are glad, sing, and dance for joy. The gospel causes us to sing and dance for joy, even if it costs us our life. And like Habakkuk, Tyndale would rather have God, rather have Christ than any earthly life. So church, let us live by faith. Let us die in faith, firmly believing and rejoicing in our Christ, who is worth that much. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the olive crop fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Amen.